Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor from Football 365 and Adrian Clark, the Tactical Analyst. Fans, we're told, are the lifeblood of football. They've certainly been noticeable by their absence as the game grinds back into gear. No one has quite filled the vacuum in empty stadiums. Korea had their problems with artificial crowds. German teams still sound as though they're playing in the local swimming baths. And there's some other weird and wonderful ideas out there trying to recreate the fan experience. But let's cut to the chase here, Seb. Will the financial crisis lead to more fan-run clubs if only to enable them to survive? I think in a few cases it's going to be a necessity, Mike. It's interesting that we've had this sudden realisation about the importance of fans. As a supporter, it's quite hard not to take that quite personally. It's taken a kind of a global pandemic for, for the game to realise that, yes, actually supporters are quite important to the process of the game. I think fan ownership is important, not just for the financial reasons, just because I think fans generally serve as the morality of clubs in that kind of situation. So we've spoken quite a lot, quite often on this pod about lack of responsibility and you know, whilst acknowledging that nobody could see this situation coming, that certain clubs, by way of kind of reckless ambition and not really giving due diligence to consequence, made themselves more vulnerable to others. And I think one of the benefits of fan ownership is you don't have that. If a fan organisation has a place on the board, yeah, you generally get a sense of the importance of the club to the community versus, you know, what a, a new owner wants to use the club for in relation to their vanity or their ambition. So I think it's a really good measure to, to bring accountability. So I'd like to say whether it does, I think I think we're talking about kind of the lower levels of the game. I can't see any such change really occurring beyond kind of championship Premier League level. It's something I'd welcome. It's something I think most people would welcome, Mike. Yeah, well, you've seen it work, haven't you, Aid? Places like Exeter is a really good example. You have. Exeter have not been flush with cash since they since they made the change, but they've been very stable as a club and it's a really, really well-run operation. I think part fan ownership might be the future. A lot of owners out there will be strapped for even more cash, looking for either a way out or investment. And it could be a good opportunity if there are groups out there that have the funds, groups of supporters, I mean, it could be a good opportunity to get their place on the board and to have a say in the running of their club because their club will need money and, and I'm sure they'll be able to buy shares. It's, it's a good time, I guess, as well for fan ownership or part fan ownership to function because the salaries will, will go down. I think we're, we're all agreed on that and and that will make it, make it easier. And I also think that having tighter financial controls from above in an all-consuming new way we don't know what that will be yet, but we know that it's needed. We need uh, transparency. We need audited books regularly. We need tighter restrictions. And in that in that kind of environment, fan groups, fan ownership will, if not thrive, it will certainly be well suited to that. Yeah, well, you know, the principle is, is a very, very good one that you, know, you engage people and you involve people in something that means something to them. 
But there are limits. Now, actually, as a former player, I'll, I'll bounce this one off you, Aid. Livingston in the Scottish Premiership were conducting a Twitter poll on whether they should give their goalkeeper, Andy Maley, a new contract. Now, my first instinct of that was it must have been some sort of parody or a wind-up, but it seems that they were serious. Could you take that seriously? <laughs> well, it depends what you read. I've read that it was a joke and that Livingston were in on the joke. I mean, it's a bad joke, isn't it? It's, it's, just, it's a really rubbish joke. It's not funny. Guys, um, not, I so I dug into this a little bit. and yeah, go um, on. Apparently... The mechanism, it, it, was, it was sort of a way of raising money for children's hospitals. So oh, um, every every vote that he got as a renewal um, yeah. was, a, I think, um, I'm not I'm not quite sure of the, the, the number, but I, I think it was a, an extra pound going to children's hospital. But it was so sort of, it was so convoluted that I completely agree. It was a lovely benevolent gesture, but sort of shrouded yeah. in the kind of, um, <laughs> you know, you know, those sort of the japes that, that bookmakers do online sometimes mm. it reminded me of one of those yeah and i almost felt quite guilty when i found out the kind of the the, the justification behind it but then well you, you could have yeah. you could have, could have presented it in a slightly more a slightly more transparent way well i think so and they, if they had have said that then maybe well maybe the reason they didn't say it was because they didn't want too many votes but but there were over a hundred thousand so and i think it was a 70 30 split in favor of him signing a new contract and i actually voted even though i i, I took the mickey out of it at the time I, I voted to keep him because because i just felt incredibly sorry for him just on that subject very quickly i have told this story on air before but for for many listeners won't have heard it when i was at stevenage in the national league there was talk of a this was probably in the days of big brother but no made in chelsea no no towie we'd pretty much signed up to to become a tv club you're the manager and it was going to be aired on Channel 4 and part of it. And look, I, I was one of the sceptics. I didn't really want to go with it. But but the squad voted and we, we agreed to do it. Basically, the it would be part, part real-life football manager and part sort of soap where you'd follow you at home. But but in terms of in fan involvement, I know, it's crazy. I'm just imagining uh, you on Dream Team, mate. That's all right. <laughs> it's, it's a horrendous idea. I mean, it's the young lads that wanted it. Um, yeah, I was I was fairly old by then. I didn't I didn't fancy it at all. Well, the, um, the fake yeah, Tamburg but, idea. Yeah, exactly. But 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 the reason this this rings true is that there were going to be an expert panel that would review the matches, and there would be I think three or four players put up each week to be dropped, and the you're the manager, the fans would decide who who basically who who the manager would pick for the 11. So, so I think like three three of the places might have been up for grabs with a public vote. Um, you could have in-game texts for substitutions, etc. It was absolutely bonkers. The, the National League voted categorically not, not to go ahead with it in the end, but, but Stevenage had signed up to it. So, yeah, there you go. It, was, it, it almost happened in, in real life. So, yeah, maybe it's not quite as far-fetched as, as, it, as it seemed at the time when we saw this poll. No, well, I suppose clubs are, are, you know do whatever they can to try and engage supporters. And obviously, because we're in the situation we're in, in terms of just the, you know, the games being played in isolation, people are trying to do something different. West Ham fans are trying to get, they're discussing trying to get their faces on the screen at the Olympic Stadium during matches. Aarhus in, in Denmark are trying something similar. Now, Seb, is that just a gimmick or imaginative engagement? No, it's a gimmick. I mean, I'd love, love to actually meet someone that would want to be on the screen in the Olympic Stadium. I just you sounds, <laughs> sounds like I played with you with a few. <laughs> well, I, I I just I I kind of hey, this when 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 these ideas were first introduced, I think what we said about it all those weeks ago was that the more these things happen, the more you're trying to make it like normal, the more everyone just misses it. So, and I, obviously, most of us have been watching the Bundesliga, and we've seen a few things. So we've seen like big flags covering seats. We've seen cutouts of fans on seats. It, it it's all a gimmick. It's all a kind of it's all a sort of a soft news story to fill the fill the gaps in the papers until football comes back normally. There is no there's no silver bullet solution here. There's no, you know, the 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 the, pump, the piping in of crowd noise. I haven't experienced that yet, but the people that have, I mean, are all fairly damning about it. I'll defer to their opinions. As far as I can see, there's no way of making 
of trying to create any sort of normality. I mean, the only idea that I quite like is the one that came up a few weeks ago, which was the dedicated fan, the, the one fan that you could have that traveled around with you. I thought that was quite charming. It doesn't, it doesn't create any normality, but it would be quite interesting just to nominate a person to be your fan. Yeah. Did you see the Times today? There's a piece in the Times on this subject and one that the sort of headline new gimmick it comes from Japan, who are obviously ahead of the game, aren't they, in terms of cutting-edge technology. There's, there's an app, the Remote Cheerer app, allows users to record their messages and reactions and choose which one of 58 speakers in the ground they'd like it to be aired through. The app's been developed in Japan and is going to be tested in the J-League. I don't think that would be there for, 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 for this resumption, but maybe for next season if if it works, but I don't know. And and and, and was it Aarhus that were talking about having yeah. Zoom walls yeah. around the pitch? Yeah, I mean, it is it is a nonsense. It, it really is. It is a gimmick. But it depends, doesn't it? It, dep- it depends how you like to view your t- view your football. There are a lot of people that that want this authentic experience, but a lot of people are just freaked out by it and they they, they just don't like it at all. So. I'm not, I'm not completely against these ideas. I think the one at West Ham's a joke, but I mean, who's going to look at the big screen? Let me ask I you mean, a question, it, guys. Like, so did we all watch Dortmund against Munich? Yeah. yeah. Right. So in my experience, like I, I, when, when, when the idea of empty stadium games came up, you know, there was, um, you know, everyone was pretty concerned about what the dynamic was going to be like, what the aesthetic was going to be like. But when those kind of games take place, when the quality on the pitch is good enough, did you not find yourself thinking... God, it's just a really good game of football. This absolutely, yeah. I didn't, no, no, I didn't completely. Miss yeah, I think exactly. if the standard of the football is spot on, and if it's engaging, not a problem. And and we'll get to the Bundesliga, I'm sure, shortly. But but I've been really impressed by it. I think the intensity of the players has been great. Will the adrenaline wear off once the once games that we, we start to get one or two meaningless matches because of? Bayern potentially winning the title by, by by a street. So so we'll have to wait and see on that. But yeah, no, if the football's good enough, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I, I'd agree with that because you know, I've, I've actually found it perversely actually a uh, almost a more satisfying experience because you're actually concentrating more, you're seeing things that perhaps get lost in the hubbub of a game. Mm-hmm. And I'm also, with all these gimmicks, as you rightly call them, Seb, you know, I'm inured to professional sport in terms of I just expect them to try and monetize this in some way, shape or form. <laughs> so, you know, you look at what's happening in Australia, actually today, the NRL, the Rugby League is coming back. Now they're getting fans to pay $22 for life-size cardboard cutouts of themselves to be placed in stadiums. So they're trying to make a buck out of it. Now, that's what I, I, I hate about this whole circus element to it. I found the ability to actually just concentrate on the football is a, it w- was actually just a complete emotional release. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed it. And what I found really interesting, and I'd be interested in your views on this, is that it seems to me that we, we're coming to the stage now where there will be, you know, a, a hardening of a timetable for the return of the Premier, Premier League, most probably later today. A lot of clubs in the Premier League down at the bottom are basically trying to protect their home advantage. What the Bundesliga is telling us is to doubt the actual veracity of that home advantage there's only been five home wins in 27 Bundesliga games since the restart and the home teams failed to score in 10 of those what do you think that is is that just a statistical anomaly or some sort of deeper indication of the emotional impact of of, of losing support what do you think I think it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy over time I think in the beginning it might be an anomaly I mean, you certainly saw a weird result. A Leverkusen getting battered at home a couple of days ago was a very strange result. I mean, 4-0 down at one point. I don't know. I mean, because there, there are all sorts of other things in here as well, like sort of uh, the, the kind of the intangibles, the familiarities of a home dressing room, for instance, or the kind of the, you know, the, the locality of a home city. I don't really feel like I, I can answer the question. I, I do think home advantage as a general principle, and not just in football, but in sport, I do think it's overstated. I think it's almost over time it becomes a trick of the mind in terms of obviously the way that we as supporters think of the game 
probably the way players think of the game. You know, becomes a sort of it's it's almost like a, a synthetic comfort, isn't it? It's interesting, Adrian. What, what was what was life for you? Did you did you approach games differently when you were at home? I mean, when the things like sleeping in your own bed versus a hotel are those <laughs> are those significant? Uh, it's a good question. Yeah, the preparation is is different, no doubt about that. I yeah, I did like playing at home more. I, I think I, everyone has more confidence. Everybody goes into it expecting to win, whereas on the roads at certain grounds, you know that you're in for a, a real examination, and it is hard to. To quantify that, because if you were playing the same team on home turf, you, you, you would be more confident of prevailing. It, it, it could just be in the mind. Personally, I just think in a game of small margins, and we know it's increasingly about small margins, it's just a matter of being comfortable in your surroundings. You get used to your own pitch. At Highbury, when I played there for us, it was quite a tight pitch. It was quite narrow. But you knew pictures in your own mind of where you could clip the ball one touch around the corner to someone, you you just felt like you knew the you knew the dimensions of the pitch, and you knew and you felt normal in those surroundings. When then you go away to the riverside or wherever somewhere different, everything looks different, and 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 that could, I'm not saying it will, but that could occasionally just just throw a player. It's it, it's hard to explain. It really is. I I that's that's the best way I can put it. Comfort comfortable being comfortable in your surroundings familiarity with the size of the pitch with the surface the type of surface obviously that the, there's less difference these days than there was when I played but yeah, every pitch feels different so I, I think there's a minor home advantage I, I do expect the stats to to even out in the Bundesliga over over a bit of time yeah it at the moment it's, it's subconscious maybe maybe the home teams are feeling like oh, crikey wish our fans were here and it's just throwing them. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, to your point, Seb, that the intensities of the, of the games will actually decrease because we're now getting to the stage where, apart from the Champions League places and obviously relegation, you know, we're looking at the title being done, really. In general terms, what do you think of the overall standards of the football you've seen? I think it's been excellent. I've been really surprised because I my preconception was that it would be a little bit pre-seasony, you know, without the urgency of the crowd, it kind of understates the importance of the game, whether that, you know, whether teams are playing for league points or not, if there's no crowd and it's just all echoey, it's quite hard to kind of maintain the sincerity. But on the basis that these players haven't had a proper se- a pre-season, they haven't, they haven't had the benefit of competitive preparation and friendlies or, you know, warm weather training. I think some of the football has been incredibly slick. So some of the kind of like, the set pieces in open play have worked really, really well. Like if you look at the, the the quality of some of the goals scored and the intricacy within those moves, it's like, you know, it's mid-season football, isn't it? There's a couple of players around the league that <laughs> are exceptions to that rule. The poor Schalke goalkeeper is having a terrible time. Every time I turn on the, on the TV, <laughs> he's, he's, he's doing something else. Like he, I, I switched over yesterday to find him like <clears throat> halfway up uh, on his halfway line. Trying to win a header whilst running backwards, which was <laughs> yeah. different for a goalkeeper. But uh, no, generally, I, generally, I've been really, really impressed, Mike. Me too. I have to say that the standard of attacking is significantly better than the standard of defending. But look, I, I've been, I've dipped in and out of the Bundesliga over recent years. There was a couple of seasons where I was covering games regularly, and I always enjoyed it because it was it was very attack minded, and you you always thought there'd be goals in games. And I, I think we're seeing it in most matches that that the the quality of the forward players is certainly better better than those at the back. I mean Frankfurt. I think I spoke about them on the last pod about how good they are going forward, but how just absolutely shocking they are without the ball. I mean they are conceding. I don't know what their average is so far. It must be four that they're conceding per game. It, it is it is crazy, but no, the intensity is great. It really is. There's no there's no no one's playing it out like a friendly. But yeah, you do wonder when when games become a little bit more meaningless. Will will the fact that there's no fans there just make some of the occasions very flat? We'll ha- we'll have to wait and see. But the fitness has, has stood out to me as well. I think the players look seriously sharp, and and I think what we're seeing here is a reminder of how professional footballers are. The professionalism has has been outstanding, and what what you're seeing is actually what goes on. The training grounds up and down the country 
in practice matches every every week. You have to be on your game as a footballer. I, I found it. I really only settled into it in kind of when my professional career was coming to an end prematurely. I always felt on edge a little bit because you knew that you were on trial every day in training. You knew that there's a, there might be a big training game and that you would be judged on that and how you performed might influence whether you were picked at the weekend. And and for that reason, training's pretty intense. It's not, not muck around. And I think what we're seeing with our eyes at the moment with the Bundesliga is is just how professional professional footballers are. Yeah, I suppose we're now getting to the stage where we're beginning to piece together the jigsaw of the Premier League returning. You know, there was a unanimous vote to return to contact training. Looks like there's going to be a maximum of 15 minutes per session involving what's termed close contact. We've had 12 positives after three rounds of testing, which, you know, you look at that and you think, well, that's that's acceptable. Where do you think we're going in terms of timings, Seb? Do you think we are, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it and I think it's probably going to be, you know, about a month's time probably, maybe maybe three weeks, something like that. Will we have enough evidence there that players can actually perform at the right level in that time? Hard to say, Mike. The Premier League looks like it will be one of the last elite leagues to come back. So there's a, a reassurance there in, in knowing that when it does, there are some roadmaps around Europe. I think one of the interesting things about the Bundesliga is and there hasn't been a positive test yet in well, nearly three weeks of, of football. Spanish football is going to come back before the Premier League. So I, I think there are examples to follow. In terms of performance, I have absolutely no idea what to expect. I mean, it's um, it's really a, an issue with the country at large, isn't it? I mean, we seem to be a little bit of an exception to the rule generally. So I, I'm i going to recuse myself of that one. <laughs> I, I think it boils down to, I think, was it you that mentioned this in the previous pod? If you're comfortable in the situation, in the situation you're being put in, I think you'll act normally. And and if you act normally, then then what we see in terms of the spectacle should, shouldn't be affected too much. I think a pretty swift return to contact training was inevitable, Mike, because... Players don't want if, if if you're going to go to work and you're going to train, they want to do it properly. They don't want to do it half-heartedly. They don't want to do it in drills where you where you where you're not you're not playing proper football. And and the bottom line is here whether we start on the 19th of June, the 26th, or or somewhere in between. Bottom line is the sooner you start contract training, the, the quicker the fitness levels will rise because it's a contact sport. You the the exertions replicated in a match. Can, you can only train for that by having proper training, and that means playing proper football in training. So, so the longer they have with contact training, and 15 minutes doesn't sound very much, but it's a start. I expect that to, to rise rapidly. Then, then the sooner they'll be ready for that return, and I also think that less in, less injuries will occur on the resumption if they've if they've had what I'd regard as as proper football training for for a number of weeks so yeah I think three weeks is ample but you speak to different ma- the managers will want six it's a simple it, managers will always want more tv companies will want less and us as fans will probably want less and they'll just come to a compromise won't they yeah there's there also going to be some sort of you know quite highly compressed schedule you know there is already talk of a 25 percent increase in injury risk because of that does that chime with you Aid? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I think it's inevitable that there'll be slightly more more injuries because of the the cram schedule. When you around Christmas time, when it's when it's packed, you you tend to have more injuries, and it's going to be similar. And of course, when you your body has got a little bit soft, shall we say, then you're more likely. I mean, it is. You're like a race. <laughs> no, no, I can relate. And then, and then you sort of you, you go out. You just go and you go out to pasture for a few weeks. You, everything just gets not flabby, but. But your, your muscles aren't trained, you know, in the same way. So, you, yeah, it's bound to happen. I did read a stat that you're 10 times more likely to get a muscle injury in a match than training, which I, th- I thought was, was fascinating. And that tells you the difference in terms of, of of the intensity of the sprints, I guess, that you put in. But no, it, it, it's another reason, I think, why contact training need, needs to be done now. If we'd have held off from that, 
then I think we'd see for more injuries on the resumption. Yeah, I, I suppose it's, you know, part of this also is, is, is a mental exercise, isn't it? And that's why I have respect for people like Troy Deeney and Danny Rose, who, who basically sp- spoke out about the, the personal element to the decision for a player to come back. Very interested, Darren Lewis did an interview with, with Troy Deeney on the abuse he's had for voicing his fears where, you know, basically he didn't want to put at risk the health of his son who was born prematurely and has breathing problems, which, you know, as a father myself and I'm sure you know, fathers listening to this will, would identify with that, obviously. Yet the abuse he's had has been visceral, you know, to, to, to quote Troy, I've had people wishing coronavirus on my son. Where are we going with all this stuff, Seb? Because, you know, we, we are conditioned, you know, we spoke about it in the past, haven't we? We've been conditioned to this this callousness which comes across through through using and uses football as a medium, really. Where are we going with that? Players deserve greater respect than they're getting, surely. Yeah, it's inarguable, Mike. I mean, <clears throat> where are we going? I don't know. But is anyone really surprised that Troy Deeney received that kind of abuse? Because this is this is normal now, unfortunately. It's kind of, there's this sort of small pocket of sociopaths that appear any time there's even anything sort of, whenever, whenever you need, um, you know, people to be human, that's the sort of the gap into which these people flow. And you don't, I mean... It's, uh, I'm sure kind of any father can relate to um, Troy's position on this, but then equally, you don't have to be a father to understand what he's saying. You can just say, right, well, if I had an infant son with breathing difficulties, there's no question that I would do the same and say the same things. It's just, it makes you, there's no answer to it. It kind of makes you weep, doesn't it? Because you just think we, there's no compassion left in the game. And I don't think that's necessarily about football. I think that's just mm. that's a society. Yeah, it's not deal. a game, is it? No, yeah. it's the, the, ga- the game. The game's a vehicle for expression, isn't it? It brings out things that exist already. Um, that's kind of always been true. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I just, um, I, I don't almost know really how to, to process that because really a father making a sensible decision for his infant son, and let's just clarify because of the conditions in the country, a sensible decision for his you know, son because there's you know, other less sensible decisions available in other spheres of life at the moment. But in Troy Deeney's case, how can you possibly question his reasoning? And, yeah. and, and how, can, so you, how can you bring yourself it, to yeah. say that to someone? How can you bring yourself to say, how, how, can, you, how can you wish illness on someone's child? What yeah, kind of person does that? I know. But it's not, it's, it's, it's what happens on social media. It's awful. And it's so easy to say, oh, we just don't look at it, Troy. But, but, but someone's going to be We all know what that's me. like, eh, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's, it's all yeah. very well saying that. But, you know, sometimes mm. it's it's... The rhythm of abuse on social media is it, there's, there's such a percussive relentlessness mm. to it that you know it's easier said than done. It's the it's the way. Look, social media has been fantastic for for many many reasons, but but the, the undoubted number one the downside is 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 the, the platform for sociopaths, as you've you've quietly quite rightly named them, abusing people. It's, it's horrendous. Yeah, let's let's try and ex- accentuate the positive because I, yeah, I do think we, <laughs> yeah. we've got to get, try and get some balance somewhere. The FA Cup is this the chance, perversely, to provide a platform for the revival of what is a great competition, despite fashion trends. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It, in in what way do we expect well, uh, it to have a revival? Because we're going to be consumed by we're, we're led to believe back to back wall to wall football on a Saturday, Sunday, even a Friday. Yeah, no two games in the Premier League will be played the same. So we're going to have a lot of football in a short space of time. Yeah, what where, what are you thinking in terms of where well, the FA Cup fits in? Well, I'm just thinking that you know it is something which is which is in its own little box, its own little bubble. There aren't that many games left. I'm not sure about this suggestion that, that all or most of the remaining ties should be played at Wembley. I'm not sure about that because I feel that Wembley is soulless at the best of times with fans in, let alone without fans. But I think it's almost a reminder of what we're in danger of missing. And I think the FA Cup coming back could be almost a focal point to, to just remind ourselves of the importance of tradition in the game. Yeah, and, and the importance of winning trophies as well, because we all know who's going to win the Premier League. 
That's done. That is done. We don't know who's going to win the FA Cup. That will provide excitement. And it will for the eight teams left in it, the, the fans can still dream, can't they? So, no, I absolutely think it should carry on. I, I think have them at the closed-door stadium, the home team at the, at the right venue in the quarters. Personally, I'd take the semis to two neutral grounds and not Wembley and leave Wembley as the carrot. And I'd leave Wembley as the carrot permanently, but, the, but we know the reasons why not. But it's not like there's going to be any gate receipts made by having semi-finals at Wembley this year. So... It's an opportunity maybe just to to go a little bit old school and save Wembley for the final. That's how I see it. But absolutely, it should be played. And and look, there are some teams in there that have a very good chance of of making history for their clubs. Mm, Certainly. Talking of making history for their clubs, I'm just a, a new topic. We've got players who will emerge as their most valuable player at clubs when the restart actually arrives. So, you know, let's look at each club on a club basis and just talk a little bit about which player at that particular club will emerge as the most important factor when the restart arrives and hopefully we all play to a conclusion. We'll do it in alphabetical order. So that means starting at your club, Arsenal. I would propose that Hector Bellerin will emerge as the sort of leader, I think, that the team quite possibly has lacked. You know, we know he's a bit of a Renaissance man. He has a wide range of interests and he dares to be different. And he's also, I think, an underestimated player. What do you think his role is within that dressing room, especially with some of the younger players coming through? And... Above and beyond that, who else do you think will feature highly for Arsenal when we yeah. all get going? Yeah, it's an interesting pick. I think that Hector, I really like Hector. I think as a person, he, he, he's he got a lot, lot of qualities and he's a definite, he's a born leader. No doubt about that. He's not a follower. He will he will have strong opinions and he'll, he'll follow those with conviction. And it's important to have those kind of characters in the dressing room. I think he's a good speaker. So he will... He's got perfect English because he's been here a long, long time, but he's also an overseas player, as you know. So he's one of these that I think fits between all of the groups. He can relate to the kids. He's still pretty young. He's got a lot of compatriots there. And also he's he's almost a senior pro now. So no, as a leader, I think he's he's really important to them. My worry is that he hasn't kicked on in terms of his playing. He's never been a brilliant defender and and... And I think we're all looking to see to see that improve in, in the months and years to come. And if hand on heart, he wasn't anywhere near his best before the break. He was struggling a little bit. I thought I thought for form. So maybe the rest will do him good. I, I certainly think he'll be first choice. But but long term, I, I don't know. He's got to do the business. He's got to prove. I think to Arteta that he's he can still be a star player. I I, I fear that if he's below average on this resumption that they might even look to sign someone at right back. So to watch this space, personally, I think Arsenal need to win games. It's all about winning because of the position they find themselves in. So I'd look towards the forwards. Pepe and Aubameyang had a good thing going just before the break. Their combination, Pepe provided a number of goals for Aubameyang. So that had clicked. But but the one player that I think could be really important for Arsenal in, in the resumption is someone that was on the bench just before and that's Alexander Lacazette. They need goals. They need people to step up to the mark. And I know always he, he's a scorer of big goals, Alexander Lacazette. In, in in matches that matter, he often comes to the fore. Now I desperately hope that he's going to do enough to prove to Arteta that he deserves a start ahead of Enketia, who who had the had the shirt ahead of the break. But if Lacazette plays, Arsenal are stronger in my opinion. And if he fires then Arsenal will win win games. And and you don't know where that might take them. So let's see. Yeah. Seb, anything to add on no, that? No, not really. I mean, I, I'd like to see more from uh, Bakri Saka. He's a super player. And I think it'd be interesting had the season reached a natural conclusion to see whether he might have might have made it to, to the England squad because I think he's a terrific player. He's, he's probably, I mean, I think he's the most interesting sort of left-sided fullback Arsenal have had since Ashley Cole. So, yeah, I don't think he'll be decisive. I think it's a bit contrarian to kind of put him ahead of someone like, as Aid says, Lacazette or, um, you know, Aubameyang or, you know, any of the, really of the central midfield players. But, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more from him. 
Okay, let's look at Aston Villa then. You know, one of, one of the features of this restart will be players who have re-emerged from injury. You know, taken this two to three months to actually you know build themselves back up again. I'm looking forward to seeing how John McGinn uh, fares on his return from a fractured ankle. It didn't surprise me that someone like Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, by repute, was really, really impressed with him and actually was talking about him as a potential Manchester United player, someone who can drive a team, especially in the position that they find themselves in. If you look around that Villa squad, Seb, who impresses you as a you know a key element of a successful fight against relegation? Well, other than the obvious, which is Grealish, probably both of Tyron Mings and Pepe Reina. Mings is... I I watched Mings properly for the first time actually in the playoff final last season. And good defender, good footballer, but also a leader. Now, I think Villa have to become a little bit more stable at the back. They've got to score a few more goals as well. But I, I think... I, one, of the, one of the kind of the most descriptive parts of their season was the kind of the way in which they lost that game against Tottenham at Villa Park. Like you kind of, it's an old Sam Allardyce-ism, isn't it? About respecting the point, but it's kind of the carelessness with which certain points have been have been lost across the season. Yeah, I just think the kind of, I like the idea of that Rayner-Mings axis because obviously, you know, Rayner is Rayner, hugely experienced goalkeeper, but Mings is now an England international, good footballer. First Bath player in a hundred, Bath born footballer in a hundred years to have, to have represented his country. Yeah, yeah <laughs> really? I think I brought that up before. Wow. Any excuse, but I, I I really like him, and um, I think for Villa it's all about providing a platform of stability for Grealish. Yeah, because he's your match winner, isn't he? He's he's he is the the elite footballer in that group, and if everything can become a little bit more stable, then they've got a chance. Yeah. Uh, look, the the right names we mentioned. Grealish is the best player. Mings is the, the best defender, and McGinn is the the one that's a bit different. And I would definitely go along with Mike here and say that on the resumption, it'll be it'll be kind of like a new sign. And I guess McGinn coming back statistically of all the orthodox central midfielders in the Premier League, no one has more shots per ninety than John McGinn. No one has more touches in the opposition box per ninety than John McGinn. So he is a proper old school box to box central midfielder. He's also a prolific tackler and and ball winner. So so they've missed him badly. And they will need wins as well. They need a they'll need a few three point hauls. And having someone that breaks into the eighteen yard box from deep, causing the chaos factor, is going to be incredibly important for Aston Villa. So yeah, John McGinn is going to be huge. Yeah, now you've sounded the like a new signing, uh, Claxon. Claxon. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll follow that one up with Bournemouth, if you like. David Brooks. Now, he's someone who he did his ankle ligaments in pre-season. You know, it was touch and go whether he would come back this year. I look at the player of last season, seven goals in 30 Premier League games, a young player making a real statement of intent. And I look at him and I think, here is someone of real potential who might, just might, begin to edge back into our consciousness in what remains of this season. Anyone else at Bournemouth leap to mind? No, I, th- I think Brooks is the right call because I, I think in, in many ways, Brooks is kind of the difference between what Bournemouth were last season and what they are this. He's actually, if you, if you stand up close to him in a mix zone, it, it's quite it's a little bit startling how thin and slender he is. He's a very delicate looking player, but he's amazingly gifted. And he also, he has a, a degree of craft which doesn't really exist in the same way in that Bournemouth side because obviously they've been built to counter-attack with, you know, King and Wilson and, you know, Ryan Fraser down the wing and, and you know, players like that. But Brooks is the one that you that receives the ball really well and can use it really well in any kind of situation. He is fabulously gifted. I, I always, I think that... um. His injury has kind of prevented people from realizing just how good he is because I think he's someone that's headed for the top six eventually. If he can stay fit, then yeah. Other than that, Mike, the usuals, Nathan Ack is going to be really, really important. The goalkeeper is really important. Aaron Ramsdale, who I, he's had a, a few ropey moments this season, but I've been generally impressed by. I know he's tested positive over the last couple of days, so there's a little bit of an asterisk there, but he's going to be vital. And of course, you know, Wilson, King, you know, because 
they're, they're, they're kind of Bournemouth's meal ticket at this level. If they don't score goals, if they're not being productive and efficient with the ball, then they've got a problem because they just don't defend well enough. But yeah. Yeah, they lack craft, don't they, Bournemouth, this season? They've not created anywhere near enough chances. It's as simple as that. Very reliant on, on Fraser set pieces. They're great at set pieces. They're always very inventive. They've always been obviously reliant on on those slick counters, the balls down the sides for Callum Wilson. But you need someone to play those balls. And 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 Brooks was probably the one with a bit of guile that would that would produce the right way to pass. I'll chuck another name into the mix, Philip Billing. I think that he was brought in to add steel in there that was, that was missing in the midfield. They had they had incredible workers, did Bournemouth, your, your Goslings uh, and the like in there. And they, they, they're still there, of course. They, they would run around. They would cover more ground than any than any other team in central midfield Bournemouth. But they didn't have that power man, that strong guy. And, and Philip Billing has added that. I mean, he, he ranks very highly in, in tackles, interceptions, recoveries, etc. And, and protecting a, a slightly questionable back four, I think it's going to be really important for them, especially when they're not exactly scoring stacks of goals. So, so he's someone to look out for as well. OK, let's look at Brighton. I'll suggest Steve Alzate, a player signed from Leighton Orient a couple of years ago, did very well on loan at Swindon last season. I think it was three goals and four assists in 20-odd appearances. Still, it's 21, made his debut, man of the match at Newcastle. He's played in certain, you know, several roles, really. He's, He's good in possession, very quick. He's adaptable, and if you look at the way that Graham Potter sets up that side, you know, possession-based, he he's got all the assets to play in several positions. I think he, he could be a you know a winger or a right back. He could be a central midfield player. Camden Bourne, that made his Colombian debut at the end of last year. Here's someone who's almost crept up unnoticed on the on, on the Premier League, and I think he is one of the great sort of breakthrough stories of of the Premier League this season. Anyone else around him take the eye? Well, I, I think you're right to point out him. Uh, he just needs goals and assists, doesn't he? That's the only thing missing. I, I, I too have been impressed definitely by his, his positional versatility. The one that stands out for me, I, I wrote a piece on him not that long ago for the Premier League, was Dan Byrne. Kind of, he's a guy that came from nowhere. I mean, really. Uh, spent a lot of time at, at Wigan. Uh, he's a giant of a man, six foot seven, playing at left back. Quite remarkable, really. But but he looks good there. And and why he's so important is is because we know we know Potter is is, is a really fluid coach tactically. He's basically got an extra centre half in Dan Byrne who tucks in and and wins so much at, at the fast stick. He, he joins in as a centre half when he's needed. But then on the ball, he's he's proven to be a bit of a revelation. He set up some some really good moves down down that left flank. So so yeah, for me, I mean, it's no coincidence. Every game he's been fit for this season, Dan Byrne, Potter has picked him for, and and, that, and that's no mean feat for a player that didn't really have Premier League pedigree. He loves Dan Byrne, <laughs> and and look, I I've been really impressed. So so yeah, keep keep your eye out on him. I think he's a player that. A lot of managers will be looking at the way he's being used by Potter and they'll be thinking, hang on, I wouldn't mind a player like that. Could be a bit of a trailblazer. And 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 look, there might even be other clubs in for Dan Byrne moving forwards because of what he offers. Mm. Do you think that um, there are anyone else down there who could um, surprise a few people? So? The guy I like is Leandro Trossard. On the basis of what we've watched in the Bundesliga, Agent mentioned this earlier, some of the defensive players have found it harder to get back into the rhythm. And so it's very much been the attacking player's day. And Trossard is that type. He's you know, got low centre of gravity, moves quite well off both feet, beats people. I really like him. He hasn't he hasn't quite he hasn't exploded onto the Premier League scene, let's not overstate it. But just looks like a really good technical footballer, nice attacking presence. And he's one of those people that you can imagine maybe in light of some sort of defensive vagary might prosper. But a fun player to watch at the very least. Yeah, I think if we go on to Burnley, yeah, <laughs> less, fun. Uh, less fun, but but more consistent, but more yeah. consistent. So, and, and actually, that probably ties into my choice. Probably, you know, I'd I'd go with Ben Mee. He's you know, unlike 
James Tarkovsky and and the goalkeepers, Tom Heaton when he was there and, and Nick Pope, he hasn't been called up to the England squad. I think he's been quite close. And I first heard of him oh, many moons ago when he was at the Manchester City Academy and was, uh, people were saying, this kid has got fantastic maturity and real potential, played only one game for them and has basically established himself as a senior pro at Burnley, signed on loan for a year, I think, in 2011, and has been a pretty much a, a fixture ever since. And to do that within the culture set by uh, Sean Dyche gives you a good indication of his character. I think aerially he's pretty good, despite only being, what, just under six feet. But it's that consistency and that, Consistency, not just in terms of quality, but in terms of application as well. He, to me, sums up the qualities that it's very easy to poo-poo, but actually are embodied by that Burnley team. They're going to survive yet again. Anyone else up there, Seb, that you think deserves a bit more praise than he gets? Without question, Dwight McNeil. I think if he was playing anywhere else in the country a left-footed, left-sided winger with good delivery, I think we'd be noticing that a little bit more on the basis that he's an English player. Additionally, in the last sort of six months, he's shown kind of, he's shown real steps forward. Like he's become a little bit better in close quarters. So he's, he's beating people a little bit more often. He's kind of, he seems to be making decisions a little bit quicker. I think he's, honestly, I think Dwight McNeil is an England player in the future. I think he deserved to be. I think if he was playing anywhere else, people would be a bit more curious about him and a bit more excited about him. And also, in terms of effectiveness, if you're if you if you if you're aiming crosses for Chris Wood and <clears throat> players like that, you know, or centre backs coming forward in that system, you are very valuable by definition. He's not just a good player in the context of what Burnley are. He is a good player, and uh, yeah, I, I think he's criminally undervalued. Yeah, I, I completely agree. By the way, with with Seb on on his future, I think that he will get into the England squad eventually, and. The big boys will be looking at him. They really will. It, uh, the test will probably come next season. Can he maintain the same levels? But look, he, he ranks very highly for, for the accuracy of his crosses. And and his combination with Chris Wood has, has brought about a lot of goals. So, yeah, he he's massive. Yeah, you've highlighted the right people. I, I'd just say Nick Pope. I think he's still someone that, that, that fly, flies a little bit under the radar. Most clean sheets this season. No one's got more clean sheets. That, I mean, this this isn't just to his credit. This is to Burnley's credit. What an achievement that is so far. They might not finish the season with the most clean sheets, but right now they have 11, I think, and and and, and that's a lot of it's down to him. He's claimed the most catches from, from high crosses. He is a sweeper keeper. He'll... he'll no one's actually... And then you think about Burnley defending deep and narrow. No one's... M- made more accurate sweeper-keeper clearances than Nick Pope, which I think just shows that there's, there's a bit more to his game than maybe we, we thought. So, no, he's, he's a goalkeeper. And I love, the, I love his story, the way that he's come from, from being fairly unwanted in the, in the lower leagues to, to becoming an England international. Quite a remarkable rise. And, yeah, if Burnley are to finish top half, we need Nick Pope to, to be just as brilliant in the, in the closing weeks of the campaign. Okay, chaps, well, it's time to start to wrap things up. Our thoughts for the day. Seb, is there anything you'd like to ponder on? Uh, Not so much ponder on. I I just wanted to um, extend some recognition to Marcus Rashford for his charitable efforts during the lockdown, near the help he's given in in trying to feed children. I just think that uh, he's not by by no means the only one, but I think he's one of the footballers that's really stepped up, really set a very, very fine example, really behaved like a role model, so lesser thought, more just a, you know, very well done, I think. Yeah. Aid? Yeah. <laughs> Don't burn your bridges. I think a little birdie tells me that, that Nathan Jones will be reinstalled as Luton Town's manager today. Very shortly, in fact, I believe. He he left under a slight cloud, but but didn't completely burn those bridges with the club. And I think that that, that has is going to pay off for him and he they've turned to him in in a moment of of real need and, and desperation i guess but he's the right fit at luton they loved him there he brought in a brilliant culture and, and they just haven't been the same without him it didn't work for him at stoke but at luton 
he proved what, what an excellent coach he is. And I think it's just a reminder again of taking club statements with a pinch of salt. I mean, they talked about when Graham Jones left of, about the financial for financial reasons. It's nonsense. It was always nonsense. They were going to employ a manager that earned just as much as Graham Jones, probably more. And they just wanted someone different. And, and that's Nathan Jones. So I wish Nathan well. He's a, he's a, he's a friend of mine from my playing days. And uh, yeah, I'm pleased to see him back. Well, that's good. I'll, I'll sort of tangentially talk about another manager, if I may. In the last episode, we spoke about dads being the hidden heroes of football. They introduce us to the game. They pass their love and their loyalty down the generations. Now, for some of us, following an unsuccessful or an unfashionable team, it's a beautiful burden. It becomes part of our life. It also stays with us till death has do part. And like the rest of the football world, I was saddened to learn last night that Ron Smith, the father of Dean, the Aston Villa manager, had passed away after contracting the coronavirus. He was 79. Now, for me, two paragraphs from the club statement confirming the news stand out, and I'll quote them. A lifelong supporter, Ron was a steward at Villa Park for many years and passed on his love of the club down to his children. As well as being a regular at home games, Ron was also there to witness that greatest of days in May 1982 when Villa lifted the European Cup in Rotterdam. Now, Dean used to sweep the steps on the Holt End while his father worked as a steward in the Trinity Road stand at Villa Park. When he spoke about his dad on taking the manager's job, his pride was obvious, and I'm sure that pride was reciprocated. I'm also sure that I speak for us all in passing on our condolences. Thanks to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast and please stay safe out there.